Hey guys, Justin Fall here with a quick message. The Fourth Watch Radio Network is always blessed to be able to bring you new episodes each week free of charge, and we firmly believe that there is no price that can be put on the gospel. With that said, I want to ask each of you to pray about helping support this ministry, whether it be on a monthly basis, a one-time gift, or however you're led by the Lord. Your financial support, regardless of the amount, will help continue the broadcast, as well as reach many people around the world with the gospel. I sincerely ask that you prayerfully consider helping us as we face the upcoming financial needs. All gifts, regardless of size, are needed and much appreciated. If you're willing and able, you can send your support via PayPal using the donate button on fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. The donate button has been fixed and it's now working properly. I truly thank you and I pray for each one of you that you're truly blessed through this ministry. Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight is going to be the final installment of our two-part series dealing with the Cosmic War. Tonight we'll be picking up with the multidimensional conflict and working our way through many details that are leading us up to Armageddon. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I call this episode, The Cosmic War, Volume 2, Angelic Road to Armageddon, with special guest, BDK. Tonight we're joined again by BDK of Omega Frequency Radio, who is an avid researcher and a powerful speaker. His website is omegafrequency.com, where you can find his podcasts, as well as a wide range of valuable resources. I definitely recommend his podcast, so be sure to visit his site. Now, without any further ado, let's go ahead and go to the line with my good friend, BDK. BDK, welcome back to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Oh, dude, I'm happy to be back. Thank you once again for bringing me back, man. I had an awesome blast talking with you last time, man. Oh, It was amazing. Seriously, like this topic, the cosmic war, getting into prehistory, it just, it always blows my mind. Like, seriously... This is one of those topics that I could sit around all night drinking pots of coffee and talking about. <laughs> Amen. And it's it's so vital. People are always like, why are you talking about these fringe issues? And I'm like, what part of the Bible is a fringe issue, man? This is Genesis 3.15 starts it all. Without Genesis 3.15, there's no John 3.16. There's no Revelations 20. I mean, this is the heart and soul of the gospel is this war between good and evil. And praise God, because in the end, my friend, Yeshua wins. Always. Every time. Every time. And, you know, if you're listening right now and, and you say, well, I love your show, but I'm not a Christian. I put up with your Christian talk because I like your topics. I just want to tell you these topics that you like so much, 
They're all based on the cosmic war. And that's the reason we do these shows. So I hope, I hope that there's some of you out there that are on the fence right now. And I hope you're hearing this and you're understanding that all these topics that you're interested in, they all go back to Genesis 3. The war of the seeds. The cosmic war. Amen. Last week we talked about, we got into uh, the prehistory. We talked about the Garden of Eden and we talked about the way things were before the fall. We talked about Satan before he was Satan. We talked about just so many great topics. If you haven't heard volume one, go back and listen. But tonight we're going to pick it up. We've worked our way through time a little bit. We're still dealing with a pre-flood world and we're dealing now with a fallen race of mankind. Sin has infiltrated mankind. We're also now dealing with some dimensional changes. Okay, things are different now. Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden. They've had offspring. Man is multiplying on the face of the earth. We're now up to Genesis 6, where we're seeing a physical action taking place by the fallen angels to create their seed. Now, this goes right back to the prophetic statement in Genesis 3, where we talk about that enmity between the seeds. So go ahead and, and you can you can go ahead if you want to give us a little backup on that, uh, taking us back a little bit um, with the dimensions for those people who may have forgotten. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the purpose for creating these hybrid beings because of the third and fourth dimension, and then we'll go ahead and move forward. Sure. Originally, when Earth was created, whether you believe that was pre-gap theory or six-day creation um, or a recreation, um, there was no spiritual veil between the two, mankind and God and, you know, the fallen angels and the real angels. They all walked in all the spatial time dimensions. And when mankind fell, God put a cherubim in the middle of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword. And I believe that part of that was he split the dimension. He cut it in two. I believe that if you were to walk through Jerusalem or even through through where the Garden of Eden is now, you would walk through the dimension where the Tree of Life is. And that's another reason why I think that it's Jerusalem, because the Tree of Life is there. That Tree of Life is still there. You just cannot see it. The angel is probably still guarding it. You cannot see it. It's it's quarantined behind this dimension. And the reason that this dimension exists between the third and the fourth is because we are, you know, it's God's plan to protect us from some of the evil that's on that fourth dimension. There's a whole society behind this dimension. There's technology behind this dimension. And it's it's filled with things that would literally try to kill us if it could. The sad thing is, is that we're, we're, we're doing everything we can to try to poke holes in this dimension and to invite things from this dimension over into our reality not a smart thing. Well, you see, we're, we're actually seeing that right now in multiple facets. Um, one of the things that I've always had a just a heavy conviction to expose is the practice of astral projection. You know, yeah. I got I got into researching astral projection. Uh, goodness, in my early days of doing the fourth watch, and I've done I've done quite a bit of research there. And there's even some parallels between astral projection and what we call the contemplative prayer movement which you can read about, uh, I believe it was the CBN website, the Christian Broadcasting Network, good old Pat Robertson and his website, they have steps that will teach you how to contemplative pray or contemplatively pray. And they're very similar to how to astral project. Very strong similarities there. 
Um, and, and people come back from their astral projections and they're talking about, oh man, it was really good. I was on this plane or that plane and I was running into this creature, that entity or, you know, and I'm working on getting my way to the top where I can be in the good, the, 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 the good area, the good area with all the ascended masters and all this stuff. So we see that aspect of the other world. Okay. We also see the aspect that people are trying to tap into that world by taking certain psychedelic drugs, the ayahuasca, the DMT. And this allows their pineal gland somehow to open up their ability to spirit walk into these realms. And, you know, a lot of research is coming out about the ayahuasca. Matter of fact, I did a show on the modern shamanism. I did the show with Ark from Destiny Lab, who does the podcast uh, Digging for the Truth with Ark and Neo. Good friend of mine. Love him to death. What's up, Ark? Haven't talked to you in a while. Hope you're well. <laughs> um but it's really crazy because you start looking into this stuff and th- the whole craze right now is experiencing spirituality outside of Yeshua. And these people want to experience these realms. And then the other part of that is we've got this whole CERN conspiracy going on right now. And I'm going to say this real quick and then we'll jump back in. Forgive me again. I'm getting on a soapbox. Um, my mom and dad were out walking at the park the other day. And there was these three guys out walking, pretty built, pretty athletic guys. And uh, one of them was wearing a cross. And somehow he ended up talking to my dad. And my dad was like, well, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, praise God. We're all, you know, born again Christians living in the last days. And they had a great talk. Well, they said goodbye. And my dad is getting ready to pull out. Well, this guy rolls up right next to my dad and his Mercedes. Uh, this guy's driving a, a Mercedes and he rolls his window down. And he says, you know, he motions for my dad to roll his window down. My dad's like, OK, what's up? And he says, I just want to tell you something on my heart. He said, a lot of Christians aren't talking about this right now. He says, but there's something called CERN. And he said, and it just came out recently that some of the scientists are talking about seeing these demons and these entities appearing in the midst of their research. And they're able to describe the entities that they're seeing. And my dad was like, whoa. He said, my son has mentioned that. He says, my son has a a radio show. He talks about stuff just like that. And this is new. I mean, this is news to me because I had not heard that the scientists are describing some of the entities right now. I mean, to me, this is breaking news. (laughs) Maybe I'm a few days late. I don't know. But that's tapping into that dimension you're talking about. This quarantined dimension that we are not supposed to be accessing. Yeah, and it's a hedge of protection. I mean, we read the Bible and Yahweh specifically tells us not to go poking holes in the hedge of protection. He says that... If we poke our hands through the hedge of protection, don't be surprised if literally a serpent will bite you. So we need to really be careful about what we let into our lives, what sort of things that we participate in, because there are evil spirits attached to certain things that, like we said in the last episode, want to try to usurp our authority and influence our actions so that they can manifest their plans in the earth. And if people don't have a solid foundation in the word of God, and you know, to say that you have a solid foundation in the word of God, that literally means that you have a solid foundation in Yeshua because he is the living word. He, I mean, Yeshua himself was the word made flesh to dwell among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And praise God, he is still with us. But, you know, we are not supposed to be poking around in these things. I've said it before. We don't need 
Uh, we don't need CERN to open up portals. Matter of fact, people have been opening portals with satanic rituals for thousands and thousands of years. But as Christians, we are not supposed to channel. We are not supposed to soothsay. We are not supposed to get involved in the spiritual realm outside of what was given to us, which is the power of the Holy Ghost, the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given power over demons, but we're not supposed to try to go and communicate with them. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. I'm getting I'm getting heated up over here. We had we just got started and I'm over here. I'm like starting to sweat. <laughs> oh, I feel like I need to ring the boxing bell. And there was um, someone out there that needed to hear that. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> praise God. Praise God. Praise God because we we always pray that God would lead our words before we record and um so I I have to say amen. I believe somebody needed to hear that. But we're talking about this, this fourth dimension, this other realm, and, and science has proven, and it's debatable, you know, some people say there's nine dimensions, some say 11, I've even heard 13 or 14. Um, but regardless, we've got these other realms that we are not supposed to be tapping into, and it's your belief, and I'd have to say that I agree with you here, that the tree, the tree of life, is literally an invisible, it's, it's in another dimension, but it's over in the same area that we know as Jerusalem. Yeah, and it has to be because the Bible is very clear about that, that when the millennial kingdom comes, the kingdom to come, that that tree will be once again visible and it, the leaves will actually be for the healing of the nations. And it will be one of the things that sustain us in that long life that people will have back then or during that, that time. Um, it's just that the dimension, the veil that that kind of separates us, the Bible says, kind of will be rolled back like a scroll at his coming. So th- because we'll have those be- those bodies that are able to walk between dimensions and because Yeshua will have bound Satan and a lot of these evil things from the fourth dimension, these other dimensions won't be so hazardous for us to be in. And they will that be locked sense. down. I mean, the scripture talks about uh, Satan will be given one last go when it comes down to the end of the uh, the end of the millennial reign. So at the end of the millennial reign, uh, Satan will get one last go around. Um, but for the most part, I mean, from what we see in Scripture, they're going to be bound until that time. Yeah, and that that's part of the mercy and the justice that we talked about in the first episode. I mean, it's going to take a war for it to happen. Yeah, but. That's how the world and the nation will see God's love, because in his justice and his mercy, he'll go to great lengths to hinder or to wipe out anything that hinders that true love from being shown. And we're talking uh, we we ended last week talking about the Nephilim from Genesis six. And you said something really powerful that they were created because Satan wanted to have a creature or an entity that was in the third and the fourth dimension. Correct. That was one of the main reasons. Well, there were two reasons he wanted the Nephilim created. The first was obviously to try to pollute the bloodline and to mess with humans' DNA so that the Messiah couldn't be born. But he wanted something that was part angelic and part human because these warriors would actually have access and power to not only see into the fourth dimension, but to have that spiritual occultic power, that demonic power, that they get from the fourth dimension and then to also be part of earth and to have that dimension that an earth person has. Now, what's interesting about that is that when we get into the topic of demonic possession, now I'm, I'm not talking about oppression here. I'm specifically speaking to demonic possession where a person is actually physically possessed by a demonic spirit. 
which we hold the view that that demonic spirit is a disembodied soul of a Nephilim. So the interesting thing, and when we go to the book of Acts, we see the girl that was possessed with a spirit of soothsaying. She had the spirit of divinity or whatever you want to call it. Everybody has a different title. King James says the spirit of soothsaying. She was able to speak fortunes to people. She was able to see certain fortunes from the future. In a very short future, she didn't have free reign, but she was able to tell people fortunes, and Paul recognized it as demonic. He recognized it, and Paul cast that demon out of her, and then it says that her pimps, or her handlers, whatever you want to call them, they got upset with Paul because he just basically threw away their income. They were making money by her telling people's fortunes. So I believe that when someone's possessed by a demon, they're literally possessed by a Nephilim soul, and they're able to have certain, that body, even though it's it's a flesh body, because it's possessed, while it's possessed, they're able to do things that defy our earthly logic because they're operating from another dimension. Now, would you say you agree with that? 110%, Justin. And, it, and that's, you know, Satan needs people like that because he's trying to direct a plan. He's trying to implement his kingdom and he needs there to be something to fight against the true power of God because Satan is a counterfeiter. He can't do anything original. This is all about a series of moves. It's move versus move. It's it's battle shot after battle shot. God has an army on this earth of born-again, spirit-filled believers. The Bible says that we, unlike the Nephilim, we're not made of um, corruptible seed. We're made of incorruptible seed. We receive this divine spiritual blood transfusion from Yeshua. And we also now, through the power of the Holy Ghost and the power and the authority of Jesus's name, we have the ability and the authority to stand against things that are in the fourth dimension. We have that authority to bind those spirits, to pray against those spirits, to war against those spirits. And we also have the authority in the earthly three-dimensional world. So Satan still needs a counterbalance to that. Satan still needs a check and balance system. He needs to engage in acts of spiritual warfare. So that's why, you know, basically demon-possessed people are kind of like the Nephilim back in Genesis 6. Maybe they're not giants, but they serve kind of the basic same purpose. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've told the story, uh, and this is this makes people uncomfortable, but my brother and I encountered a demon-possessed woman uh, years ago. This was the first time it woke me up to it. And we laid hands on her. And again, I a lot of people will say, don't ever touch somebody when they're demon-possessed. Just cast that thing out. I had no experience. This was the, I mean, literally the first time I ever came face to face with it. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we prayed, uh, we had prayed that God would start using us in mighty ways, but we, <laughs> we didn't think we were going to come face to face with this thing. And, uh, we're outside of my old church, laid hands on her. And it was like, boom, one second, she's standing next to us. We touch her. The next second, she's over 12 feet away from us. Never seen anything like that in my life. Some people would say she teleported. Uh, you know, some people would call her a jumper. She jumped. I don't know what you want to call it, but it defied logic. And we're dealing with things that are outside of our third dimension or our three dimensions that we experience. So I've always been awake after that moment. I was all, I mean, it was like an instant awakening to the demonic. 
And this was years ago. This was early in my ministry. So I'm glad that I was exposed to it so early. But once that happened, my eyes were open to the real war. You know, it's not just some spiritual warfare that we're hearing about in church where, oh, you're just tempted and, you know, you just got to do the right thing. No, we're dealing with a cosmic war. The, the separation between our seed through Christ and the seed of Satan. That's the war we're talking about. So I'm going to go ahead and pass the mic back to you. Um, we're dealing with the seed war now, the cosmic seed war, and the Nephilim have just been created for the first time. And... Nephilim have always been a thorn in the side of God's chosen people. Like, the Bible says that the first batch of Nephilim giants and these giants, they were destroyed by the flood. But we see that they still show up in the Bible very regularly throughout the Old Testament because there's more encouraging. Some of them escaped. Some of them went to different places. That's why we're seeing, like, you know, Native American mounds, if you check out the episode that just dropped a couple of weeks ago where I interviewed Chief Joseph Riverwind, he talks exclusively about the Native American traditions and about the Nephilim Mounds and how they had um, visitors by what they called star people that did exactly what they did in the book of Genesis 6. So we see that they have always been a thorn in the children of Israel's side. Wherever Israel would go for their next major victory, there were always Nephilim there. There was always Nephilim there because Satan's game plan really doesn't doesn't change. But see, here's the cool, cool thing. And I'm going to get into something that maybe our listeners maybe haven't heard before. But I think it's of utmost importance because we're going to talk about the cosmic war. And then we need to talk about the ultimate cosmic warrior. Amen. Yeshua was promised to come through as the Messiah through the seed of Eve. That's Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity or warfare between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heal. That promise was made. And the moment that promise was made, the moment that promise of the head getting crushed, of Satan being defeated by Yeshua, he makes that plan for the Nephilim. He makes that plan for the war. He makes that plan because he knows that if God says the deliverer is coming to fight him, then that deliverer was coming. Satan never doubts the promises of God. And if we want proof of that, all we need to do is look at his actions. He has been working over 6,000 years just for one singular moment in history, and that is the Battle of Armageddon, the final showdown and the ultimate fulfillment of this Genesis 3 prophecy. That's how true the promises of God are. That's how true they are. You can take them to the bank. Now, here's where this amazing thing happens. This is where Yeshua goes and he's going to fight against these Nephilim. I believe that the moment the promise was made to Eve, that battle began and Lucifer tried to stop that seed from being born into Eve's bloodline. However, Yeshua never left it in anyone else's hands to guard the very bloodline that he would be eventually born into. And this is so important. This is why you can trust God's plan, because it is God's job alone to guard his word 
and to perform and fulfill the promises that he makes in it. Jeremiah 1.12 says this, Then Yahweh said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. It's Yeshua's actual responsibility to protect his word. He protected his chosen people's bloodlines personally so that he would have a people to die for when he came as Rabbi Yeshua. And I believe that he did it through the Old Testament in a very specific way. Now, before I get into this, what I'm going to warn you, what, I, what I'm going to say might shock you. It might be new. It was new to me when I started studying this stuff and searching it out. But I want to make you this promise. And everything that I have been sharing with you, everything I shared with you in the previous episode, I've always quoted scripture to you. Okay, I will never give you my theory on anything unless I can just like scripture after scripture it. So I'm going to show you what Yeshua's role was in this cosmic war by using the scripture. And I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to investigate the scripture references yourself. The beauty of this is, is it's on, you know, it's being recorded. So you can go back and you can listen to it over and over again. You can write down the scripture references for yourself Never, ever take anything that I say for yourself unless you prove it yourself, unless you're being a Berean and checking it out for yourself. If a Bible teacher or anyone that's trying to teach you the word of God says you have to take what they say on faith alone and doesn't challenge you and drop a gauntlet in front of you to search out what they're saying, and if it's true by using the Bible, don't give that person much attention. Amen. Because when you search out the words of God, you are honoring the living word of God, which is Yeshua. So we're going to get into this, and I think it's really worth all the digging, because there is a powerful truth to be uncovered about the character and the person of Yeshua as tied to this. And it's because of this that the church is floundering and dying in the wilderness. Now, the first thing that we need to know is that there is a second person of the Trinity, that's pretty much a theological given, unless you're like a oneness Pentecostal person, which I don't think there's any sort of belief in that in the Bible. I believe there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we would call them. Well, I did a pretty extensive teaching on the triune God or the Trinity, whatever you would like to call it. Um, you know, and, and folks, if you have any questions about that and you haven't you haven't been turned on to that teaching, go back and listen to the show that I did with Tom Horn and Chris D. Putnam. The show is called Portals of the Immortals. I do an extensive teaching on the Triune God at the end of that episode. So anyway, I'm sorry, uh, BDK. Please, please go ahead. No, that's awesome. Now, the second person of the Trinity is what we would call Yeshua. And we call him Yeshua because he was physically born into the world. He lived here for 33 years. We gave uh, the God told Joseph to name him Yeshua through the message of Gabriel. And Yeshua just means Yahweh saves. But Yeshua, or this person of the second trinity, has always existed throughout time. He predates time. He predated Moses. He predated Noah. He predated Adam and Eve. And what the most, now, the thing that most people don't discuss is what the second person of the trinity was doing before he lived on the earth as Yeshua in that physical body for 33 years. And here's the thing. When I first got saved, I always wondered what he was doing before he was born in the stable. Like, how come he wasn't mentioned by name? 
it, it always just kind of seemed unlikely to me that he was just kind of sitting on the sidelines, kind of waiting for God, who this heavenly coach to kind of put him in the game, you know, and that he would just come for these 33 years. But we know that Yeshua is the living word of God. So he has to be in all of the word of God, in all of the scriptures, both the Old and the New Testament. Yeshua even taught this himself. In John 5, 39, he says, Yeshua says that all the scriptures will testify about him. Not just the new stuff in the New Testament, but also the old stuff in the Old Testament. It says this, search the scriptures, for in them ye think that ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. All of scriptures is going to testify about what Jesus was doing because he is the living word of God. Amen. So if that's true, the real question is, what was Yeshua's role during the Old Testament? To answer that, we're going to take a look at one very specific, almost mysterious figure that keeps showing up in the Old Testament. And it's a person called the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And he was a definite actual, specific person, rather than just like a random angel. And we know this because it's always referred to as the, definite article, angel of the Lord. Singular. Now the interesting thing is that you don't hear of the angel of the Lord after Yeshua was born. Just pre-Yeshua. And that's because I believe that the angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Yeshua. And I'm going to prove this from scripture now in a couple seconds. But before I do, I want to make this disclaimer, because the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that maybe Jesus was Michael. But that's not what the Bible is saying. He was not the same type of angel that Gabriel was or Michael was. He was not an archangel. He wasn't a created angel. Okay, He always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Now, how come they call him an angel of the Lord? Well, if you look, that word angel can literally mean messenger. Even the pastors in the book of Revelations are called angels because they're messengers. So the angel of the Lord could literally be referred to as the living messenger or message of the Lord or the one who speaks with the Lord's voice, which I'll show you in a couple seconds. And this makes sense because in the book of John, he is described as the living word of God. Now, we know that mankind was created in the image of God. And we also know that angels can literally be mistaken from men from time to time. So in my mind, it's really not so much of a stretch to believe that maybe angels also bear a certain likeness to the image of God. And that theologically, if God appeared physically in the Old Testament, it's very possible that some of the ways that he may have looked might have actually resembled an angel or even sometimes a man. Now, he would also take on a form that people could see. There's lots of times where, you know, like Abraham is talking to God. Like He wasn't necessarily always hearing a voice in his head. He would have visitors, and one of them would be like a human person, and he would fall at that person's feet and say, my Lord, my God, because he understood that in a very physical presence, God was there. Why did God choose to show up in a physical presence that we could interact with? Because the Bible is very clear. God is so holy that a mortal man cannot see him 
and live. So God needed, when he wanted to interact and guard the bloodline, he needed kind of like a body that would facilitate that. And he's always, sometimes it's, he's like a being of fire. Sometimes he's that being that was in the pillar of fire. But a lot of times this angel of the Lord actually had a body. Now, how do we know that the angel of the Lord was God? Well, the Bible says it in a few places. Um, in Exodus 3-2, we have that famous passage where the burning bush is going on, and we know that it's God that's speaking to Moses. He even gives us his name, I am that I am, the great I am, or Yahweh. If we read Exodus 3, verse 2, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he, that's Moses, looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So how do we know that the angel of the Lord that appeared to him in this bush was God? Well, it actually says so two verses later. Verse 4 and 5 say this, When the Lord saw, he turned aside to see, God called out to him in the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thou standest is holy ground. There, right there, we always assume, oh, well, yeah, it was God that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. The Bible specifically says it was the angel of the Lord that appeared and spoke and said that he was God. So that's the first proof I can offer you that the angel of the Lord was God. The same angel literally said, I am that I am. And we know that that is the name of Yahweh. But furthermore, Yeshua himself claims to be, I am that I am. In John eight fifty eight, he says this, Yeshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, when the Pharisees heard Yeshua make that statement, they knew exactly what he was claiming to be. He was claiming to pre-exist Abraham. He was claiming to be the great I am. And he was actually claiming to be the angel of the Lord. And they accused him of blasphemy. They literally picked up stones to kill him, which was the Old Testament punishment for the act of blasphemy. So we see that Yeshua literally says, I'm the angel of the Lord. Now, the most blatant example of Yeshua being explicitly described as the angel of the Lord is in the New Testament book of Jude. Jude 1.5 says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, there's a parallel passage in Judges 2.1 that looks at this, exact same terminology from the Old Testament perspective. And it says this, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give unto your fathers. Now notice, the New Testament said that Yeshua brought them out of Egypt. The Old Testament said the angel of the Lord brought them up out of Egypt. So we see the Bible just comes right out and says that Yeshua was the angel of the Lord. And now that we know that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Yeshua, we can look at one very important question. What does the angel of the Lord do? 
did the angel of the Lord have a specific job title? And we find this in Joshua 5, 14 through 15. Now, we know that Joshua took over for Moses as the leader of the children of Israel after Moses died. And right before the battle of Jericho started, Joshua had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And he encounters what looks like a warrior with his sword drawn. Now, we know that this warrior is the same angel that appeared to Moses in the burning bush because he says so in verse 15. Look at what this angel tells Joshua to do. Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. It is the exact same command that the angel of the Lord gave to Moses. Furthermore, when Joshua saw this angel, he fell at the feet of this angel and called him Lord. Okay, But the angel didn't rebuke him for it. Why is that important? Because we know that John, in the book of Revelation, had a couple of different times where he saw a vision and he fell at the feet of this angel. And the angel right away is like, no, man, get up, get up, get up. You cannot fall at my feet. You can only fall at the feet of the Lord. So the very fact that this angel didn't rebuke Joshua for doing this and calling him Lord shows that he was the Lord. He allowed worship. He accepted the worship. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing. Now that we know that this was the angel of the Lord, now that we know what's going on, we can know his job title. And what was it? The angel of the Lord tells us exactly what his job title is in verse 14 of Joshua 5. And this is the exact words of the pre-incarnate Yeshua. And he said, Nay, but as the captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his faith to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Whenever you hear of the host of the Lord in the Bible, it is without exception referring to angelic beings, most specifically an angelic army. So what was Yeshua back before he was Yeshua? He clearly comes out and says it. I am the leader or the captain of the angelic army. I am the one who is leading the fight against the fallen angelic armies of hell, the ones who are literally trying to stop the seed from being born. He did this so that Satan could not wipe out the seed, because if Satan would have had his way, he would have wiped out the seed using Nephilim, using breeding, using violence, everything that he was trying to do. And if he would have wiped out the people of God, Yeshua wouldn't have had a people to die for when he came as our Redeemer. And he won't have, wouldn't have had a people to come backward during the second coming. So he took it upon himself to guard his own bloodline. He was literally the captain of the armies of heaven. And when he returns again, it will be an all-out assault against the Antichrist and Satan. And at that time, he will finally put an end to the seed war that started in Genesis 3.15. Jude 1, 14-15 makes this abundantly clear that when he comes back, he will once again captain the armies of heaven. It says this, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied 
saying, Behold, the Lord comes with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. But that's not all the angel of the Lord did in the Bible. In Genesis 19, 1 through 24, we see that it was literally the angel of the Lord that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, wiping out Nephilim again. In Jude 5, he killed the unbelieving Israelites in the desert. In 2 Kings 19.35, the angel of the Lord actually kills 185,000 Assyrian mm. soldiers in one night. The that's pre-incarnate a, Jesus. That's a slaughter. <laughs> slaughtered 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night in Psalms. And this angel of the Lord was like a folk hero to the children of Israel. In Psalms 35, 5 through 6, King David would literally pray that the angel of the Lord would hunt down and destroy his enemies and scatter them like chaff before the wind. But what's even more incredible is that it seems that Yeshua himself was a Nephilim giant killer. Yep. Whoa. Let me explain. Exodus 23, 20-23 says this, Behold, I send my angel before thee to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him. Obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thy enemies and an adversary unto thine adversary. For my angel shall go before thee and bring thee into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Prezites, the Hivites, the Canaanites, and I will cut them off. Now notice, they had to obey whatever the directions that the angel gave them because it spoke with the very voice of God. And here's something else. That angel could pardon sins. That's what it says. And it also says that that angel would go into all the Amorites, the Hittites, the Canaanites, all these places where Nephilim giants dwelt, and it said that it would cut them off, which is King James for slay those stinking giants. As a matter of fact, in verse 29, the angel has to put a limit on himself for killing these people. He does. He says, I will not drive them out before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field multiply against thee. Basically, he was saying that if I go in there, like I killed those 185,000 Assyrians in one night, I could actually wipe these dudes all out myself. Like, that. But by the time that you get there, the land will become so desolate, so overrun, that there will be nothing alive, there will be no crops, and all the wild animals will have eaten everything. But if I do it a little bit at a, at a time, year by year, then by the time you get there, it will be harvest time. Everything will be good to go. You'll become the new landowners, and you'll have a fresh new crop that you didn't even plant. Now, why is this so important that we understand this? This is why. In verse 21, it says, Beware of him. Obey his voice. Provoke him not. 
for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Did you ever want to know why the Bible says that a whole generation died in the wilderness because of their sins and couldn't enter the promised land? It was because they didn't obey the command of Yeshua to take the land. They didn't obey the voice of that angel. So that angel would not pardon their transgressions. I used to read the story of the 12 spies who saw the giants in the land and they freaked out and they got fearful because they looked like grasshoppers in their eyes. And before I understood this, I used to be like, you know, don't you think it's kind of unfair for God to be so harsh? Because after all, they're human beings. Like maybe they were just afraid. I mean, that's a human fear to have. But here's what makes this so egregious. They had absolutely no reason to be afraid because the angel of the Lord had already been going and weeding out these giants already, proving, proving that he had this power to do so in reality. That is why Caleb and Joshua didn't doubt for one second that they could pull this off because they knew they had the captain of the angel army on their side. And that angel would not fail. If that angel wanted to, he could wipe them all out in a second because of the power that this angel had. But there was another aspect at work, too. Because the angel of the Lord had the name of Yahweh, it means that the children of Israel represented that name. They were to be a living testimony to the nations. When they were to come into a land, the people were to be afraid of them because the voice of the Lord, the name of the Lord, the authority of the Lord was supposed to go before him. This was a matter of identity and personal honor was the making sure that name was lifted up, making sure that name had honor. They dishonored the name of the Lord and the Lord's testimony by refusing to go in and take that land. And they should have known better because the captain of the angel army was already doing this. That's why they had no excuse. That's why they died in the desert. That's why it was so unforgivable. And this is why I said this in the beginning. If we don't understand who Yeshua is, that he is a fierce warrior, that he has always been a fierce warrior, and that he will never stop being a fierce warrior, we will make Jesus into this pansy, pacifist, love you no matter what, hippie, psychedelic super Jesus. With with a lisp, with a lisp. With a lisp, a a big lisp, wearing pink and rainbow, f- no, I don't even want it, boas, boas like they do in the church at Olstein's church. Thank you, Bruce Pepper. Amen. And here's the thing. Once we don't understand that he's the judge of the world, we will not take sin and the judgment for that sin seriously. And then a whole generation of so-called Christians and sinners will die in this modern-day wilderness and go straight to hell. Now, I hear what some people are out there saying, well, you're kind of being unbalanced. What about this lovey-dovey carpenter Jesus? Oh, yeah? Are you talking about Rabbi Yeshua, the one who went around talking that we were supposed to live holy lives, ones that honored God's laws and commandments, the rabbi who taught that he came not to bring peace but a sword? The rabbi that said, you need to count the cost of this message because this message is a divisive message and it will cost you everything. 
And it might even cost you your money, your family, your land, your good standing. It will cost you your life. The same Rabbi Jesus who taught there was only one narrow way, this Rabbi Jesus, and he wasn't even some carpenter. He was a rabbi who taught about the realities of spiritual warfare. He wasn't a pacifist when it came to spiritual warfare. He went around casting out demons everywhere he went. He fought Nephilim giants in the Old Testament. He dealt with the spirits of those Nephilim giants that he killed in the New Testament. Think about that for a moment. The disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim giants, he never stopped fighting about them. And as an aside, those demons knew exactly who Yeshua was. And they were terrified of him. They knew that he was the one who would actually finish what he started as captain of the hosts of the Lord when he binds them in hell at the appointed time. That's why they freaked out. They're like, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? These demons knew exactly who this rabbi was. He was the warrior Yeshua. And it is a sad day when we so-called Christians have a worse understanding of Yeshua than the demons have. Now, we have to remember we're dealing with a warrior Jesus here. He's a righteous and just warrior God. And when we go back and we really put things into perspective, the way that BDK has just been doing and dealing with the angel of the Lord, and even in Judges, we go back to Judges chapter 13, the angel of the Lord appeared to Samson's parents before Samson was born, and they, he prophesied unto them about their son being born. And it's crazy because even when he left, I mean, this, this is mind-blowing. After the angel of the Lord left, Manoah, uh, the father of Samson, he said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. Amen. That's verse 22. So we're dealing with a warrior. Our God is a warrior. This is not a joke. And this puts things into perspective when we start talking about the angelic war. We're dealing with angelic warfare. That's part, I mean, a, a spiritual warfare is angelic warfare, folks. I mean, because we're dealing with the demons who are offshoots, who are, we'll just call sub-creations of the fallen angels. We're dealing with the fallen angels, and then we're dealing with God's holy angels, his army. So this really puts things into perspective. You know, we, we really want to break down that this is an angelic warfare, period. And if we don't understand that, we're going to miss so much. And we go into the New Age movement. You go into these New Age bookstores, and they've got classes that are teaching you how to contact angels, um, you know, how to interpret dreams that angels have given you, all these crazy New Age practices, because it's like the veil's been lifted. The New Age world knows that these things are fallen angels. They don't call them fallen angels. To them, they're just their angels. And people are praying to these angels. They're calling on their power. We're seeing this in some of the, uh, the hyper-charismatic churches these days. Calling on the angels. I mean, unbelievable. There's videos of Todd Bentley and others calling on the angels to come and, and just fill the room with glory. I mean, last time I checked, the glory that we need to be filled with is the glory of God, not the Amen. glory of angels. We don't pray to angels. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to Mary. We don't practice necromancy. Now, I, I want to I throw something out there. This is interesting. When we start talking about the last days, we, we start putting things into perspective. Uh, now, neither one of us are going to sit here and, and, and put a timeline out there. Okay, We're not date setting here. That's, that's not how we operate. 
Matter of fact, we just talked about some of these well-known people that are, you know, date setting with the Shemitah and these other things, you know, and one of them just recently started backpedaling to protect himself from looking like a fraud. Um, but regardless, you know, we, we start talking about the end times and the means or the methods, they're getting really tact, I mean, very tactical when it comes down to it. And I want to, you mentioned something that just really caught my attention. You mentioned the Hittites or the Hittites. And <laughs> we know that there were Nephilim among the Hittites. This is a historical fact. There was a rock and roll group that came out, goodness, I think it was sometime around 2001 maybe. I forget. But they were called Dead Z. Okay, they kind of sounded like Marilyn Manson. And a lot of people say, oh, well, rock music, you know, some of them are involved in the occult, but some of them are just putting on a show. Well, I'm going to tell you guys something. This group, Deadsy, I'll never forget this song called The Key to Gramercy Park. Now, the video, and, and please don't go listen to this, okay? This is demonic. But the video shows the band playing in these, like, genealogist, geneticist, doctor uniforms. They've got all types of medical DNA symbolism. And they talk, the, the, the song talks about the revenge of the Hittites. Mm. <laughs> I mean, whoa. And it always stuck out to me back in the day, and I never understood it. This was before I knew about the Nephilim. But they were singing about the revenge of the Hittites and having this key to Gramercy Park. And they talk about sexual actions being performed under the stars. I'm not even going to get into the lyrics because it's disgusting. Totally disgusting. But this is the reality of the seed war. It's being, you know, aspects of the seed war, they're being infiltrated into the movies. They're being infiltrated into the music, infiltrated into religion. We're seeing this happen. What scares me the most is look at the young adult fiction literature that's out there now. Look at the witchcraft. But like I was in Barnes and Nobles the other day. And I was looking, just like walking through, and I found myself in the young adult fiction. And I cannot tell you the countless books upon books upon books in the shelves for ages 12 to 16 that dealt with people having sex with fallen angels and Nephilim. I mean, and it was bold and blatant. That these people were like, and there were love stories of, oh, this misunderstood James Dean rebel angel comes down and he steals my heart and gives me superpowers. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, have we gotten so corrupt in society that that's an acceptable thing for 12 to 16 year olds to get a hold of? Well, I mean, it goes right back into the Twilight series. And I'm not going to go deep into this. I'm not going to waste time on this. But the idea of a human woman or human preteen, adolescent, however old she was, I don't know. I didn't read the books. But the whole idea, the whole idea is for her to fall in love with this fallen angel vampire. And let's just be real for a minute. The idea, the, the, the modern day vampires that were taught about in the movies and the TV shows, they're eternal beings. They can't be killed. I mean, granted, they say drive a stake through their heart. But I mean, in reality, come on, let's just be real for a second. They're eternal. They don't age. They drink blood. They have sex with women. They can create their own hybrids. It seems to me like it's almost a, a direct parallel to a fallen angel. And this little this girl is falling in love with this guy who's like a 100 times her age. But it's okay. 
by the end of the movie, everybody wants everybody to get together and marry. Oh yeah, let her let her cross over, let her marry this fallen angel vampire. Now the TV shows, it's all it's getting into the idea of angel DNA. I mean, we're seeing it. We're being conditioned for what's about to be released. I'm telling you guys, the Nephilim are still being created today. That is my personal opinion. I believe that they're using technology, merging DNAs. And I don't just mean Chimera. I'm talking about fallen angels today are working with geneticists and they're merging DNA. I really believe it. I totally believe it. And, you know, do I have a newspaper article that I can prove it? Well, not exactly. But if you know how to read between the lines, you can start piecing things together. But I mean, even the stuff happening with CERN, before CERN, let's just go back before CERN, uh, back around 2012, when everyone was all concerned about the end of the world or the, 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 the change of the world, of the Mayan calendar. I mean, people started to see things in the skies over around California and Mexico. There were reports of, of shadow creatures or humanoids with wings. I mean, just craziness, stuff that nobody ever saw coming. But what are we going to be seeing in the last days? We're going to be seeing more and more of what I call a hybrid army. I believe they're creating modern day Nephilim. I believe they're creating them in different ways than they created them in the Old Testament. And I believe we're going to be seeing more and more of this stuff happening. And it's the seed war prepping their army for Armageddon. That's my personal opinion. And I'm right with you too, man. Like I understand I mean, like when I got saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and I was born again and all that good stuff, I had a deep love for Jesus. But I didn't understand the true depths of who Jesus was until I understood the Nephilim, until I understood the seed war of Genesis 3:15 and 6, because that's when all the pieces started falling together. And that's why Satan wants to keep topics like the seed war just kind of like a fringe topic. One that we really don't need to discuss, because not only does it expose him and his end time plans, but it exposes the fact that Yeshua is a warrior king that will crush the serpent's head and remove everything evil that hinders love. That's why he wants to keep us focused on the happy Jesus of Christmas and not the holy Yeshua of Armageddon. But most importantly, he wants to keep People from remembering what will happen when Yeshua returns. The fact that he's coming back with an army, the one we just talked about in Jude 14 and 15. Because when all is said and done, you will either be part of the army of the saints when Yeshua returns, or you will find yourself being one of the people fighting against them. And there is no in-between. You know, the modern-day seeker-friendly, sensitive church Man, we spend so much time building churches, programs, businesses. We spend so much time networking. We spend so much time of doing everything under the sun that we've forgotten one simple fact. Yeshua isn't building a building. He's building an army. And brothers and sisters, we're in that army. And it's about high time we were about our father's mission. It's about high time that we realize that if we want to rule with Yeshua in the kingdom to come, then Yeshua must rule our hearts now on this side of the kingdom. Because here is a truth that I learned early on, and it's one that has always stuck with me. Someone once told me that only the ones who are under the rule of Yeshua get to rule with Yeshua. 
And if we truly want victory over these demonic forces that Justin was just talking about, these end-time Denzians of hell in the last days, then we must do as we were commanded to do in Exodus 23. We must obey the voice of Yeshua because then and only then will he be an enemy to our enemies and an adversary to our adversaries. And that's the true path to power in these last days. They want, Amen. Amen. And they want revenge on us. The fallen angels, the demons, they want revenge on us. And you say, well, what do we do to them? Well, we became part of the body of Yeshua, the body of Christ. And they want revenge on God. They want revenge. You don't believe me? Go back and look how everything's gone down. I mean, Christ, Yeshua, in all his glory as the angel of the Lord, smiting the giants, killing them, killing the the wicked people who were on the team of Satan. They want revenge, and they're not playing. That's why the spiritual warfare is so thick these days. Because they're really gearing up for this this last day revolution of demonic activity. And I'm gonna I'm gonna just say this too. We've really got to think about these things. Some of you are gonna hear this and you're gonna say, Well, this is really interesting. It makes for a great discussion. I love hearing this stuff, but I just don't know how real this angelic army or this angelic war, I just don't know how real it is. Well, let me let me just tell you this. There are multiple high ranking secret societies that literally call upon the name of Lucifer. They literally worship at the altar of Lucifer. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. They call him the light bearer. And just like the Bible says, he appears as an angel of light. This is not a surprise. So if you think we're making this up, then you must think these other people are making up the fact that they worship him. This Mm -hmm. is real. You know, and you get into some 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 very uh, unorthodox theories out there, and I've got quite a few of unorthodox theories to most people. But the fallen angels that are not bound right now, they're shapeshifters. They can appear to be men. They can appear to be men that are aging. Think about this: if they can shapeshift, they can give the appearance of aging. I mean, the same fallen angels that have always been around since their creation, they're now living in we'll just call the postmodern world. It's possible that some of these men that you think are men in politics, that they're not really men. It's possible that they're fallen angels that are appearing to be men pulling the strings, trying to make other men their possessions to do their bidding. I'm just throwing that out there. You know, it's on record that the Pindar of the Illuminati or the the Pindar of the Draco is what they call the head of the Illuminati, the penis of the dragon. That's their official term. I'm not being gross. I'm not making it up. Pindar of the Draco Whoever the head of the Illuminati is, it is a very well-known fact that whoever that man is at the time takes his direct orders from Lucifer. This is a big deal. We are seeing the cosmic war heating up. We are seeing it in the war against Christianity. We're seeing that right now. Pastors are being forced by the government if they want to keep their tax status They're being forced either to change their tax status or they're being forced to marry homosexuals. You know, there's even seminaries right now. I just heard about a seminary that used to be a missionary seminary. They have submitted to Satan and they are now creating programs that welcome homosexuals and transgenders into their seminaries as acceptable lifestyles. This is what's going on. The war on Christianity it may have seemed kind of far off over the past so many years. We're now seeing it. It's coming. 
It is raging like a beast. You know, I did a show on the war on Christianity in my early days of the fourth watch. Matter of fact, I mean, production quality wasn't as good as it is now. I mean, it it was just a, a totally different. I just got started. That's all I can say. But if you go back and you listen to the Illuminati war against Christianity or the war on Christianity, I forget what it's called. I'm going to break down. And this was this was like two years ago. I'm breaking down things that we're now seeing happen and being forced. Am I a prophet? No. I was just teaching the things that I knew were true that I documented. And now they're happening. The war on Christianity is getting heavy. And I'm going to tell you something else, folks. There's a group out there called the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. Now, I got to be careful how I say this, but it is a Jewish organization. And they have had big problems with the Christian church that was preaching that the Jews need Jesus. They had a major problem. The ADL has written complaint letters to the Southern Baptist Convention and other groups such as Jews for Jesus. And they're complaining and they're saying that it's hate speech to teach that Jesus was the Messiah for the Jewish people too. And I'm telling you guys, it's turning up the heat right now. We're going to be seeing more and more of this war on Christianity to the point where the true church is going to get squeezed into a small corner of the world. And you've got to be ready to say, I'm a true follower of Yeshua. This war is real. The fallen angels are real. The demons are real. But but more importantly, Yeshua is real. Amen. And he's in charge of our army. We are his. We are bond servants unto him. We are his servants on his playing field doing what he says. We come to God by God's terms, not by our terms. And I'm telling you guys, if you aren't standing and practicing in position in these days, you're going to crumble and you're going to submit to the satanic forces of this world. And that's going to separate the true believers from the false believers. And I'm going to tell you like this, the true church will be persecuted. The false church, all these mega seeker sensitive churches that are teaching this crappy watered down turd in the lemonade gospel. That's what I call it. I call it turd in the lemonade gospel. Because if you're working in the yard and somebody brings you a glass of ice cold lemonade and you're dehydrated, you're going to be like, oh, great. As soon as you go to take a sip, you see a tiny little turd floating in there. You're not going to drink it because it ruins the whole glass. And just a little bit of poison can ruin the whole church. I'm going to say it just like that. And that little bit of poison is the chipping away at Christ being the only way, chipping away at his deity, chipping away at the virgin birth, chipping away at the death, burial, and resurrection. Those are things that will land somebody right in hell because they are taking away at the fact that Christ is the only way. He is the way. And, and if you go back to early Judaism, when, when the Christians uh, were being persecuted, or early the early church, Christians were being persecuted for being Christians. And the Jews said, you know what? You can't do this because you're going against everything that we're teaching. And the actual name for Christianity in those days, they actually called it the way. This is interesting. I just learned this. So instead of being called Christianity, it was called the way. We're followers of the way. So if you're not a follower of the way, and that's a narrow way, I just want to really reiterate that. It's narrow. It's not this wide path that everybody else is going on. If you're not a part of that, you're going to crumble, and you're going to be doing the same thing that all these other false churches are doing. And you're going to give in to the government. You're going to lay down. You're going to say, hey, you know what? Whatever you all say. We're going to use Romans 13 out of context and submit to the government, even though they're going against Christ. So you've got to be ready in this battle, folks. You've got to be armed and prepared. Now, one last thing I'm going to say real quick, and I'm sorry to take the mic for so long. Go back to the book of Nehemiah. 
Jerusalem was getting rebuilt. God was doing a mighty work. The walls were getting rebuilt. And Nehemiah had set up his men to build the wall. Now picture this. You've got a wall being built. And you've got all these nations surrounding the wall that's being rebuilt. And they hate it. Because they knew that that wall signified a strong tower. Which signified God's hedge of protection. And the nations surrounding them didn't want it to be rebuilt. They were scared. And so guess what happened? They were attacking them while they were building the wall. So all these men, they were workers and soldiers. They had to be both. One, The Bible says in one hand, they had their tools for building the wall. In the other hand, they had their weapons. Because they had to be ready to stop building and to fight at any given second. As Christians, we have to be practicing in our position. This is big. I'm going to preach on this one of these days. you got to practice in your position. So many Christians aren't living up to their position in Christ. Therefore, the body of Christ isn't operating properly. See, we've got to be practicing in position for the things that are coming. This is part of living in the spiritual realm and God's spiritual realm, not the demonic realm. This is living in the light of the Holy Ghost. If you're not living in that place, folks, if you're not living up to your position in Christ, you really need to check yourself before you wreck yourself because this is not a game. Just think about those men at the wall. You got your tools in one hand, you got your weapons in the other. They were ready for anything, anytime. Amen, dude. That I don't know if I could have said anything that would have matched that if I would have had the mic. So praise God, dude. That was amazing. Man, I just I want people to wake up to this. This war is real. It's a cosmic war. We're dealing with forces and principalities that are infiltrating our homes and our minds and our lifestyles. People drive to work and they're listening to satanic music. Oh, I'm a Christian. I'm in church on Sunday, then Monday rolls around, they're driving to work, listening to Beyonce or Jay-Z, getting infiltrated by demonic oppression? I mean, come on. Oh, oh, I gotta stop. I gotta stop. I'm I'm going crazy over here. (laughs) No, it's so true, though. I mean, like, what are we doing, man? We, We act as if we can serve two masters. We really do. We act like we can do one thing and then say we're Christian on the other. But Yeshua never taught that, man. He said that we either follow Satan or we follow Yahweh. And the truth, the, the simple truth of this matter is this, you know, like hindsight's twenty twenty, and history is written by the victor and Yeshua will be that victor. And I think like when we look back upon it from the other side of eternity, one thing's going to be really, really clear when you strip everything away and you just get to the bottom line of this warfare is that This was the warfare between Yeshua and Satan. And in this war, man, Satan could care less about you. You're just a resource to him. You're a pawn. You're a genetic dummy that he wants to inhabit so that he can do spiritual evil things against the kingdom of God. And this whole entire time, he's been fighting for his chance to take down Yeshua at the Battle of Armageddon. He's been fighting some insane war that he can never win with God. But then on the other side, people, all Yeshua has been doing for the last 6,000 years is he's been trying to win your heart. That's what he's been trying to win. It's a love story. You know, it's a love story. And people, true love, true love is not, it's not some shallow, feel-good love. True love is a, is a mother and father disciplining their children for wrongdoing. You know, the Bible says that God chastises those whom he loves. 
God's love is so much deeper than a Hallmark card. Amen. And he's a just God and sin has to be paid for. It's only because of Yeshua and the blood that was shed on Calvary that day that we are even here right now calling ourselves sons of God. We are only made his children when we enter into the blood of Yeshua, the blood of the lamb, the spotless lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. And I tell you, it is an honor to be part of God's family and to be on God's team. We are to be warriors for Christ, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, well, BDK, this has been, oh, I feel like we, I feel like we've just taken everybody to church. I feel like I've just been taken to church. <laughs> oh, me too, man. Me too. Like if you were given an altar call, I would have come brother. Amen. I would have been the first one down there. <laughs> man, this is, this is good. This is, you know, and I, I'm going to say this real quick as we close, you know, to be able to join hands with the brethren, that, that's what's going on right here. That's what BDK and I are doing right now. We're joining hands. You know, we're brothers in Christ. We're co-laborers in the ministry. You know, it's not about my ministry or his ministry. It's about God's ministry. You know, and we are coming together with God as our head. You know, the Bible talks about coming together in one accord. You see, folks, when believers come together in one accord, amazing things start happening. So I encourage you all, get involved. Live life with other believers. Fellowship with other believers. Paul said, forsake not the gathering of believers. This is huge. And I'm going to tell you right now, do what we're doing. You may not have to have a, you know, you may not have the means to do a radio show or a podcast or videos, but you've got a voice. And if you've been born again and you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, then you need to be sharing the gospel with people everywhere you go. Your ministry is going to be something that God puts on your heart. He's going to use skills that you have, talents and abilities that you have. God will use that to share his gospel with the unbelieving world. So just think about that. Pray. I want to encourage everybody to pray. Say, Father, what is it that you want me to do? I mean, we know he, we know that, that he wants us to share the gospel. We know he wants us to share the good news of Yeshua. But how? How has God equipped you to do that? Pray and ask him. Just I want to echo an amen what you said. You know, God has a purpose and a plan for us in his army. Some of us are on the front lines and some of us are like the people that send the messages, like the code talkers back in the days. You know, some of us are just passing the message along. Whatever whatever place that God has for you in this army, find out what it is. Don't be ashamed to fly the flag of this army. Don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Don't be ashamed to always back up what you believe with the word of God and always be ready to give an answer for the faith that you have. If anyone asks, Justin, just, just thank you for providing this platform for me to come on and just kind of, I ranted and raved just like you did tonight. I I just love talking about Yeshua and lifting them up. So anytime I get to do that with a fellow brother, it's a blessing beyond belief, man. So thank you. it's, It's my pleasure. And it's my honor. I mean, this is what it's all about. What we're doing right here. This is edifying. I mean, this is this is literally how the body of Christ is supposed to operate. We work together. We are all members of the same body in Yeshua. And I mean, think about it like this. When you go into a restaurant, you know, anybody ever worked in a restaurant? I'm sure I'm talking to somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you got your servers, you got your chefs, you've got your people working on the line, preparing the salads, this, that, and the other. 
it's a team working together for one outcome. And the body of Christ is supposed to be like that too. We all have different gifts and abilities. Uh, I mean, even with the spiritual gifts, God has given different spiritual gifts to different believers. But the bottom line is, is that he equips all of us for the sharing of the gospel. And he equips all of us for the spiritual warfare that we are entangled into. And you know what? The fact that we are entangled into it, some of you say, well, why would God do that? It's not God's fault. We are fallen. When we are born into this world, we are enemies of God because we are born into sin. Do people not understand that? We have to come through Yeshua. Therefore, we are reconciled with our creator. At that point, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends of God. So praise God for that. I'm excited. I'm excited because I believe these two shows that we've done together, I believe they're going to stir up the hearts of men. And I believe people are going to be extremely blessed and edified by them. So thank you so much for coming on the 4th Watch BDK. Uh, Once again, share with everybody uh, the best ways to contact you. Sure, you can go to OmegaFrequency.com. That's the official website of Omega Frequency. Um, All of our podcast archives are there. You can listen to all the shows. Um, All the shows have show notes, so you can check out all the references and everything that we're talking about in them via links. Uh, The website will put you in contact with our social media portals where we break down all the news that kind of impacts Bible prophecy. You can find me on Facebook at just type in Yeshua Wins. And I always try to be really cool about contacting people on Facebook. If you have questions or if you need me to pray for you, I'm always more than willing to do that via the messaging system. And I pray for my Facebook friends specifically every Saturday during my time of prayer. So if you reach out, I'll reach out back. Amen. Well, folks, I hope everybody's been blessed by this as much as I have. And BDK, thank you so much again. And God bless you, brother, with much grace and peace in Yeshua. We are truly seeing things happen right before our eyes that absolutely confirm the cosmic war. But praise God, because we know the final result for those of us who are in Christ. Let's go ahead and move into our Bible study segment for the week. Last week, we started breaking down the famous Sermon of Yeshua that we know is the Sermon on the Mount. We're learning so many things that a true Christian's character will represent. This is a challenging study because as simple as some of these things sound, they can be rather difficult to actually live in action. Last week, we made it through verses 1 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5. So tonight, we'll pick up right on track with verse 17. And again, this is Jesus Christ Yeshua preaching an undefiled doctrine of spiritual Christian living. And not only are these teachings meant to guide you in a life that's pleasing to God, but also to help your life go smoother. Now we'll be getting into a pretty controversial area as we get started in terms of the law and the fulfillment of the law and what exactly that means to the believer. I encourage you to listen with an open mind as we dig deep to really grasp the full meaning of this passage. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verses 17 through 19. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no means pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, 
the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let me go ahead and explain what Jesus means here by the law. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. That term right there settles it instantly. When you see the term, the law and the prophets, or the law or the prophets, when you see those words together, that's a reference to the entire Old Testament. It's actually used that way 12 times in the New Testament. 12 times the New Testament refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So what is Yeshua saying then? I have not come to destroy the whole Old Testament, but rather I've come to fulfill it. Jesus is saying that God's standard hasn't changed, first of all. He's saying that no part of the sacred scripture will ever be destroyed or annulled. It will be fulfilled and I myself will fulfill it. What a shattering claim that he alone would fulfill the whole Old Testament. Christ was the one for whom it was written. He is the object of the whole Old Testament. It all points to Jesus Christ Yeshua. In its God-ordained origin, it can't be annulled, but it must be fulfilled. But not only did Jesus fulfill the entire Old Testament, but he literally fulfilled the three branches of Jewish law. Let me break this down for you. We see in the Old Testament the moral law, the judicial law, and then the ceremonial law. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the final full rejection by Israel as a nation of her Messiah. Some people aren't going to hear me here, but the word of God is clear. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the final full rejection by Israel as a nation of her Messiah. And that was the end of God dealing with the nation of Israel as a nation. Don't twist my words here. You see, the judicial law that he gave to Israel passed away when God no longer dealt with them as a nation anymore. And then Jesus built his church. And I say praise God because there will be some of Israel that will be saved and grafted back in. But as per the time that Jesus died on the cross, the judicial law came to a halt. There was no more a national people of God, but there would be a new man cut out of Jews and Gentiles. That would be called the church. And the true church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And we can read all about this in the New Testament. But you see, the judicial law came to an end. That's why Matthew 21:43 says, and I quote, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now keep in mind that the moral law is the foundation of the judicial law. So in perspective, the divine principles still exist today. They're still there and they're still binding. But the judicial law related to Israel as a nation was set aside when Yeshua died because that was the full and final rejection of their Messiah before the new covenant. And they were no longer a nation of God. You see, the judicial law was also given to Israel to set them apart from all the surrounding nations. And that nation was no longer the nation of God when they rejected Yeshua. And then the church came. And as it was prophesied in Matthew that I already read, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. This is the prophecy. But what about the moral law? In what way did Yeshua fulfill the moral law? This is fascinating. Every rule that God ever made, he obeyed. Yeshua obeyed every rule that God ever made. Every precept that God ever laid down, Yeshua fulfilled. He never disobeyed anything that God established. Yeshua, living a perfect life, fulfilled the moral law. That leaves us with the ceremonial law, which many professing Christians get really legalistic about these days. 
and they believe they can somehow please God by trying to perform the ceremonial laws. But how did Jesus fulfill the ceremonial laws? This is really important. He did it by dying on the cross. He died on the cross, and when he died, the whole ceremonial system came to an end. In fact, when he died, the veil of the temple was ripped in half from the top to the bottom. And when this veil was ripped in half, the Holy of Holies was revealed. And God was making a powerful statement. He was saying this whole Levitical priestly judicial system is now fulfilled. It's now over. So he fulfilled the judicial law by being the victim of their final rejection. And then he ended their national standings. So we see that Yeshua fulfilled the moral law and the way that he lived. And then he fulfilled the ceremonial law and the way that he died. And you know, what's interesting about this is some people say, no, it never ended. The ceremonial laws are still in effect today. The ceremonial laws included sacrifice and they were given to point forward to the ultimate sacrifice that was going to come in Yeshua. So he literally fulfilled it. And when something is fulfilled, it doesn't have a future fulfillment. Does that make sense? It's fulfilled. It can't be future fulfilled because it's already been fulfilled. Now in Hebrews 10:19, it says this, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In other words, Jesus Christ opened a new day where all could come through him unto the holiest of holies, into the presence of God. This is going right back to that veil in the temple being ripped in half. Now we can access God without being a priest. We don't have to be one of these Levitical priests under the Levitical law to come into the temple and worship God in his presence. No, we don't need that now because Yeshua ripped the veil in half. This is another telltale sign of the ceremonial laws being fulfilled. So you don't have to be a priest to access the Holy of Holies anymore. He ended the ceremonial system and we no longer worship God with the blood of bulls and goats or doves. You can go back and read in Leviticus and your mind is going to be blown at all of the ceremonial laws. But interestingly, as I've already stated, they all point to Christ. We no longer need to go through all of the offerings in Leviticus and all of that stuff. And some people are going to say, okay, that's just your point of view. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to point them to a few years after Christ died and resurrected. God allowed the Romans to come in and absolutely destroy the temple. Because people weren't doing away with the ceremonial laws. The legalistic Jews were still practicing these laws and God said, you know what? You didn't get it. You rejected Messiah. You're still trying to sacrifice animals. You're still doing things, trying to earn favor with God. And God said, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to put a final end to this. So what did God do? He brings in the Romans to absolutely destroy the temple. The entire sacrificial system came crumbling down. People need to understand that it started crumbling down when Christ died. In God's eyes, it was over. It was all over. You see, the new covenant brought in the dawning of a new day. The ceremonial system was fulfilled. That only leaves one element of God's law abiding still today. And some of you may wonder, what is that? That is the moral law. And that's exactly what undergirded everything. That will be with us until we see him face to face. God's moral law is for eternity. And to a true believer, that moral law should be living in our hearts and projected in our practices. Now, here's one more little interesting correlation before we move on from the law. After Jesus' resurrection, he continued with the apostles for 40 days, and he was teaching them his commandments of the new covenant. 
What's interesting about this is that's the exact same amount of time that Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God, getting the original commandments. They were fulfilled, and now Jesus was summing them up all into the new doctrine of the new covenant, or the New Testament. And as Jesus ascended up into heaven, he commanded the apostles to remember all things that he had spoken to them. And as we read and we study the epistles of the New Testament, we see those particular commandments. And they're all undergirded by the moral law that God created because it never changes. Now, I draw us back to this idea of 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples, giving them the commandments of the new covenant. And there's definitely a parallel here that we really have to remember. 40 days, Moses was with God on Mount Sinai. That's the original commandments given. And then we have the commandments of the new covenant given in 40 days by God to his disciples. It's an amazing parallel, and I really want people to grasp hold of this. So Yeshua wasn't destroying the law, but he was actually fulfilling it. Now, verse 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is powerful right here. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were conniving snakes for the most part, based on what we see in Scripture. Historically, they were not only adding to the Word of God and changing it, but they were known for breaking down the laws and making sub-laws, and then redefining each one of them. This couldn't possibly be any further from God's will. And Jesus came onto the scene, and He began to expose their wicked lies and their traditions. And then He began teaching the real understanding of the laws, and furthermore, the fulfilling of them. The scribes and Pharisees were all about control and self-righteousness, giving the appearance of being holy, all the while totally rejecting the true God and Messiah. Of course, there were some who got saved, but we're speaking to the majority here. And Jesus is saying that no one, not one person, will enter into heaven unless they exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we aren't to base our faith on self-righteousness or appearances, but rather we are to base our faith on the scripture living a life based on the scripture. And this in and of itself will quickly exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now moving on to verses 21 through 24. Ye have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. We now see a movement into certain actions being directly linked to matters of the heart. Truly, I tell you, the entire Sermon on the Mount is dealing with matters of the heart. And furthermore, righteousness is a matter of the heart. But right here, Yeshua is now telling us that certain matters of the heart are just as bad as actually murdering someone. Anger without a cause is summed up in a simple word, hate. It's not a sin to be angry because Ephesians 4.26 specifically tells us that we can be angry, but we are to sin not. As Christians, we can't be angry in a manner that leads us to being wrathful and seeking vengeance. 
because we know that vengeance is the Lord's, Deuteronomy 32.35 and Romans 12.19. But to be angry with a brother without cause is on the same playing field as murdering someone, because this is a matter of the heart and it's birthed in hate, as is murder, and they both will put someone in danger of the judgment. Then Jesus goes on to say, Whosoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. This is interesting. We're now moving into hating someone for a cause. First of all, it was hating someone without a cause. Now it seems that we're dealing with hating somebody with a cause. But it's clear that hate is hate, and there's no excuses for hate. So what is this term, Raka? Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka is a very interesting term. It means worthless, and it literally means to spit. So picture this with me. Somebody does you wrong, and your heart is filled with such anger that you begin to hate that person. And you hate them so much that you call them worthless, and you truly mean it as a curse in your heart. And it's so bad that you'd even like to spit in their face. Raka or spitting, is a heavy act of hate in Jewish culture. And it's still practiced today to show disrespect and hate towards others. There are even certain Talmudic teachings that encourage a person of Jewish faith to spit on the sidewalk of Christian churches as a curse. That's right, right there out of the Jewish Talmud. But going back to the idea of saying raka to a brother, it's a hateful curse, and it's like spitting in someone's face, sometimes both in the same act. But this is something I think we've all been guilty of at some point. But even to call somebody a fool in the spirit of cursing and in the midst of a hateful rage, it's equivalent to spitting in their face. And it all goes back to having hate in your heart. You might argue that there's a fine line between dislike and hate. But I tell you it's better to err on the side of safety when you're dealing with the matters of your own heart. And I want to encourage you not to walk the line or ride the fence on these issues. Simply stated... Hate is equivalent to murder. Hence the fact, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder in God's eyes. And the act of murder is a fruit of hate. And then hate is a matter of the heart. So it all traces back to the heart of man. Issues of the heart. And these issues of the heart are just as bad as acting on those feelings. Now some of you are probably thinking that this sounds extreme. And it does. But this is the kind of standard that Christ has set for us in righteous living. We are to live above reproach, 1 Timothy 3.2. As children of God, we are to be blameless, Philippians 2.15. But it goes deeper. And the day that this sermon was preached, it was a normal practice for people to bring gifts and offerings to the altar before God. And they did this as an act of worship. And Yeshua says that you can't bring offerings of worship to God until you've made things right with your brother. So if you're at the altar to worship and you know that you have beef with somebody, he says to leave. He says, go away, find that person, make things right, and then come back and worship. We can't offer worship unto God while we have unfinished business in the heart. We have to approach God in purity and we have to approach God by his terms. I know I'm pricking at someone's heart right now and the teachings that Yeshua has brought to us are meant to prick at our hearts so that we repent and make things right, and then we can come into his presence with righteousness. Now verse 25 and 26, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, 
lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, Thou shalt by no means come out thence, till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. This is actually continuing in the same thought of the last passage in terms of hate and conflict with others. So Jesus is actually telling us that when we come into conflict with an adversary or an enemy, we're now dealing with an enemy, which is the easiest time to seek vengeance. But Jesus is telling us that we are supposed to agree with him in order to escape going to court and possibly being thrown into jail. Now, this doesn't mean to tell him he's right. We don't just tell our enemies that they're right because the situation is pending. But this rather carries the notion of settling somehow. As a true Christian, even with our enemies, we are to turn the other cheek, Matthew 5.39. But we don't continue in the hateful situation. But we do everything we can to come to some kind of agreement and peace with this particular person, this particular enemy. It's easier to settle out of court with God's grace than to have to go before a corrupt system that may or may not serve justice. And furthermore, court rulings don't bring peace to people in disputes. Just think about it. But rather they issue a verdict, often leaving the people still at odds with each other. As Christians, we should seek a peaceful verdict with our adversaries. And this radical act just might be an opportunity to lead someone to Christ. And you could actually end up losing an enemy and making a friend. Now things are about to get even more personal as we approach the last areas. And keep in mind, this is right out of Jesus' mouth. So we're now at verses 27 and 28. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, we're facing a matter of the heart, ladies and gentlemen. And once again, this is equivalent to physically acting out sin. If you've looked at a person with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, plain and simple. I love how Jesus just comes out and says it. He never had a need to mince words. You see, in our culture of sex appeal, it's hard to turn the TV on without seeing sexual acts or even seeing scantily dressed women who are set up to turn you on and to cause you to lust. They are specifically used to boost ratings, and this is based on the fact that sex sells. This is a marketing ploy that's psychologically proven to work. People like to lust, and this is why the pornography industry rakes in a whopping $15 billion per year. Our culture is one that is driven on lusts of the flesh, and even more specifically, sexual lust. We've all been guilty of this at some point. And Jesus is telling us here that to have sexual lust in our hearts is the same as committing the very act of adultery. But hold on, it's going to get deeper here in the next two verses, 29 and 30. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Verse 30, and if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. And cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. This is heavy. So let me just break this down. Your eyes are sensory doorways that see temptations, while your hands represent your ability to act on those temptations. More specifically, the right hand represents power and control. 
Many times the right hand represents your whole body in general. So if you are weak to the point of seeing temptations and then acting on them, it's better to get rid of your eye and your hand rather than be a slave to sin and spend eternity in hell. The eye is mentioned first, and I believe it was strategically placed here intentionally by God. So the eye is mentioned first because it's the entry point of the temptation. You see something, and then you lust over it. And then the lust grows into a desire to act on that lust. And before you know it, your right hand, a.k.a. your body, follows through with the sinful actions. And these actions entered in through the eyes. And Jesus is saying to pluck out your eye, that it won't lead to sinful actions of your body. And he further states that if that's not enough, cut your right hand off in order to keep you from being a slave to sin. Now, obviously, we can set ourselves apart from situations where we know that we're weak. We don't have to go to certain places that will cause us to fall into sin. We don't have to watch movies or TV shows that are going to cause us to stumble. Music falls right into the same category. We don't have to spend time with people who will influence us to sin. But as Yeshua said, it's better to lose a body part than to suffer eternity in hell. Interestingly, there's a parallel that you can read in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 15. And this refers to sin in regards to the hands, the eyes, and the ears. But let's go ahead and move back to the text. Verses 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. This one is rough on so many levels because we live in a culture where divorce is just a normal occurrence. But don't be deceived. If it weren't a normal occurrence in Jesus' day, he wouldn't have had to call it out. But the question arises, why would he call out divorce? Because it can be a sin that leads to more sin, and then the butterfly effect kicks in, causing others to sin outside of the original party. You see, divorce had become a huge problem in Israel, apparently. And people would divorce for every little reason. And some would even make up excuses just to be able to divorce their wives. But according to God's word, the only reason that is lawfully acceptable to divorce your spouse is fornication. But what exactly is fornication? We hear that word oftentimes, and some of you may be conditioned to just brush it off without really thinking about it. Fornication can actually be an umbrella of actions of illicit or forbidden sexual practices, including adultery, sex with animals, homosexuality, pornography, and the list goes on. But interestingly, the word fornication in the New Testament comes from the Greek word porneia, which is the word we get pornography from. But in the strict context of this passage, we're dealing with adultery. So it's only lawful for a person to divorce their spouse if one of them is committing adultery. Now, I'm about to get all up in someone's business right now. This includes pornography. You might say, whoa, Justin, are you saying that it's lawful for someone to divorce their spouse if their spouse is caught up in pornography? Well, I'm saying it's definitely biblically lawful, but it's not necessarily profitable for someone to divorce over pornography or to divorce at all. But pornography is a form of adultery in more than one aspect. 
It's adultery to the married person, but it's also adultery to the unmarried person. As we've already discovered, to lust after someone is to commit adultery. And the act of looking at pornography is connected directly to someone lusting after the people who are in the film or the pictures. Therefore, the viewer of the pornography is committing adultery, period, married or not married. Now, someone might say, this is great. I finally have an excuse to divorce my spouse. And that right there is sin because a true Christian doesn't rejoice in any sin. But a true Christian would desire that everybody who is into sin would repent of it. But at the end of the day, adultery or infidelity, however you prefer to word it, is the only lawful reason to divorce your spouse. But at the same time, just because something is lawful doesn't mean that it's profitable. 1 Corinthians 10.23 But now let's finish up this passage tonight by discussing the repercussions of an unlawful divorce. If you divorce your spouse for any other reason besides adultery, any future relationships that come into play with the divorced parties are considered adulterous relationships. And look, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just teaching the doctrines of Jesus here. I'm not standing here as the judge or the jury. I'm just breaking down what the scripture teaches. And hopefully you're receiving this in love. So if you're listening right now and you've been divorced and remarried and your divorce wasn't based on infidelity, the scripture clearly says that not only are you an adulterer, but that your current spouse is an adulterer because of you. But hang on a second. There's good news here. The good news is that as a born-again Christian, as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ Yeshua, you can recognize your sins and confess them before the Lord, and you will be forgiven. But it can't be a watered-down confession, but a true confession that's birthed in sincere grief over your sin will be acceptable unto the Lord. We talked about this last week. But now let me take you to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of our unrighteousness can be cleansed because of the sacrifice of Yeshua on the cross. You see, He paid the price so that we wouldn't have to. I praise God for that, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm no better than anyone. And I came to the Lord from much sin, as have many of you listening right now. But the whole summary of the Sermon on the Mount is to instill righteousness into the lives of the believer. It's teaching the fruits of righteousness that will be apparent in the lives of a true Christian. It's giving a spiritual standard for us to look to. You see, folks, Jesus lived this righteous standard, and he is our example. I want to ask you some tough questions right now as we close. Based on God's explanation that we've just studied, how many of you are currently involved in murder? How many of you are currently involved in improper worship? How many of you are involved in adultery? Are you wrestling with hate or vengeance right now? Are you living with unresolved conflict between a brother or sister in Christ? Are you involved in some form of sexual lust or sexual perversion? We're now starting to see that every last one of us has broken God's moral law. And to break just one of God's moral laws 
we've actually broken every one of them. James chapter 2 verse 10. Not one of us is righteous on our own. Not one of us. Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us that, as well as Romans 3.10. You see, the law was given to show us our failures and shortcomings, and henceforth to direct us into salvation under the ultimate blood sacrifice. The law is a teacher, and I glorify God that we have a mediator in Christ who suffered God's wrath for our sin as he hung on the cross, bearing every one of our iniquities. The law shows us our need for a Savior, ladies and gentlemen, and praise God that the Savior has come for us. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and praise God for His amazing love that He showed us on Calvary as Yeshua paid for our sins. I encourage you to pray for the grace to align your hearts and lives with the powerful themes of the Sermon on the Mount. Thank God that He loved us enough to present His Word to us, to teach us what He desires of each one of us. Pray for a convicted heart anytime you start to stray away from the truth, anytime you start living unrighteously. Praise God for the promise of 1 John 1, nine that if we are faithful to confess our sins to Him, that He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And as always, pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, 
a living sacrifice and shed his sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T.com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.